So we're going to be in Matthew 5 through 7 for the next four weeks. What we're going to do this week is we're going to do an overview, all right? The cool thing about the Sermon on the Mount is that it is actually one of the, the most well-known passages in Scripture. I actually did an experiment this week uh, that, that, I'll, that I'll tell you about um, to just see how familiar it was. But as I was just doing some background research on Matthew 5, 7, 5 through 7 and the, the three chapters that comprise Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which are also found in a similar format in Luke, uh, I found that, that this, is a, this is a commented on section of Scripture um, because the, the world, whether, I mean, and I'm talking like commented like not just like in North Carolina or the United States in recently, but like, like, like Gandhi, right? Like, like, like Greek historians, right? Greek and Roman historians. I mean, renowned atheists, they, they reference this passage um, as, as some of the greatest moral teaching that, is, that has ever been uttered, that's ever been recorded. And it's really cool that the world would recognize that, right? The, the world without the Holy Spirit would, would see that, would see these words of Christ and be like, wow, there's wisdom there. Now, where they, what conclusions they draw from that are, are vastly different, but the fact that they recognize, they recognize power, they recognize authority when they hear it, they recognize wisdom when they see it, it's a common grace from God. And, and so I just wanted to do something to kind of reference the importance of this thing, and, and not only that, but how, how universal some of these truths are. Uh, I, I just want to do a little pop quiz this morning, okay? Um, so, so here's the pop quiz. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just say a line, in some ways it'll be a paraphrase, I'm playing to you guys, you guys, this is, this is for you guys to succeed, this is one of those pop quizzes I want you to fail, okay, I want you to do well, okay, because it makes, makes me look good ultimately, right, if you, if you do well. All right, so I'm going to say a line from the Sermon on the Mount, and then I want you to just finish it, okay, and, and it might not be exactly right, but I, I, think, I think you guys are going to be able to do it, okay, so let's, let's try this, here's the first one, if your eye causes you to sin, yeah, I can cut it out, gouge it out. You guys got it. Hit Mike's eyes <laughs> picking himself in the eye back there. All right, all right. Okay, uh, Jesus says to turn the other cheek. That's right, right. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other. All right, how about this one? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That, that was an easy one. Okay, all right. Uh, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. That's right. You know what I also noticed is that the KJV comes out when we do this, right? It's like, I, me- I, don't, I don't remember memorizing the KJV, but that's the way I know it. Untoos and thous and dies. All right, here's another one. Don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will... Yeah, this, uh, t- it has enough troubles of its own. Worry about itself. You guys got it. I heard, I heard enough people that know that. All right, here's, here's the last one. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, the golden rule, right? Okay, so, so here's the thing. You, you see how ubiquitous this wisdom is, right? This is church, so it's, it's kind of like, you know, playing to the crowd. But I did this in a coffee shop in Wendell where I, we, we didn't have internet for due days here at the church, so I was working at a coffee shop in Wendell. Um, I did this as a test to some folks who were in the coffee shop. They played along, and no one, no one seemed to think it was weird. I mean, maybe they did, they didn't say anything. I asked them, I said, hey, do, could you, if I gave you a phrase, could you finish it for me? And they're like, I don't know. And I gave them some of these, and without fail, most of these people could, could repeat. And I don't know if these people are churchgoers, if they're Christians, if you know, some of them were young, some of them were old, but it shows you how, how ubiquitous this wisdom is, right? It's a, it's a part of our culture, right? Uh, not, not just Southern culture, you know, not just Christian culture, not just evangelical culture or Baptist culture, but it's a part of, of American culture, this, this wisdom that comes from Scripture. It's almost like people would say it knowing the golden rule, but maybe not even knowing who it came from. But this reveals something to us, church, that sometimes, a lot of times, the way we understand Scripture, the way we view Scripture, the things we know that are, that are true, 
We only know because the culture has told us so, right? I only know some of these scriptures because I've heard people say them, but I've never actually read them. Or, or I don't know what they mean because I've heard them used out of context by someone who's not studied the Bible. They just know a thing that the Bible says. We have some work to do every time we read scripture. We have to get over this, this, this cultural filter that we have as we read scripture, and we have to see it for what it is. And that's what we have to do specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the question as to why we would study the Sermon on the Mount, well, it's, 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 it's a strategic passage, the way that Matthew sets it up for us in his book specifically, the way it's, it's positioned in Matthew, the first book of the Bible, the fact that it's the longest single chunk of teaching from Jesus, and the fact that it's so well known means that we have to understand it well. And so when I had four weeks to preach, this is what I went for. It's something I've studied, and it's affected me, and it's changed me, and, and I want to try and lay a foundation this morning for us, uh, so that we can understand what is going on in this passage. So we have, to, we have to kind of rip away a cultural understanding and look at what do the scriptures actually say, what do they mean. A part of that, a part of that is understanding context, right? We, I know Matt has said this before, I've said this before, but context is king, okay? We can't just look at a single passage of scripture and say, I know what that means. Well, you might know in that isolated event what that sort of means, but if we don't understand the single verse inside the chapter, inside the book, inside the whole of the scriptures then we can't understand what it means truly. So we have to understand the context of the Sermon on the Mount, chapters uh, 5, 6, and 7 in the book of Matthew. All right. So the next step outside of just those three chapters is the book of Matthew. So I wanted to give you a little bit of context on the book of Matthew. Okay, so Matthew, as some of you might know, is what? It's the first book of the New Testament. All right, we, that's an easy one, okay? It's the first book of the New Testament for a reason, though. As, as the early church fathers were closing the canon, which is what we call the books of the Bible, right? So as they were closing it, saying, listen, these are the books that are in, these are the books that are out, doing that by the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of the church, saying these are the books that are in, they recognized something in Matthew that Matthew intended to be recognized, that Matthew is doing something unique in his gospel. He is using his story to address Jesus to the Old Testament, all right? So this is the first book of the New Testament, so as you, if you're reading this thing chronologically, you finish the Old Testament, and then historically there's 400 some odd years of silence where God says nothing, no prophets, nothing. So the first thing that we're going to read, the first new scriptural revelation we're going to read is the book of Matthew. And what's cool is Matthew does something special. He says, listen, I want to put Jesus in context. He wants to put him in the Old Testament. He wants you to understand Jesus in light of what has already happened in scripture. So Matthew is addressing his gospel from a Jewish understanding. I think we could say he's addressing it to Jewish people, but are we Jewish? No, and here we are studying it, right? So, so what Matthew's really doing is he's trying to look back on Old Testament Scripture and, and, and show how Jesus addresses it. Not just that, but how Jesus fulfills the Messianic prophecies, and not only that, but more specifically, how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law, all the all the commands, all, the, all the, uh, the ceremonial law, everything, he fulfills it. So the thing about, that's cool about uh, what Matthew's doing is that he addresses a, a very present cultural need in this. See, in, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, just, just Israel in general, they were obsessed with something, all right? And it wasn't like the NFL or like Twitter, okay? They were obsessed with keeping the law. They were obsessed with the law. It was, like, it was like what they woke up in the morning to do. It was like, well, I'm going to find new ways to like be more obedient than the guy next to me, right? So the Pharisees were the most notorious. That's why we hear about them in the scriptures a lot. The Pharisees were the most notorious 
not only um, not not just for loving the law, but being militant about it. Right? Like like they would have they would be militant about obeying the ceremonial law. They had not only the, the law in, in the Old Testament, right, the Ten Commandments, and then the ceremonial law that, that Moses lays out in, in, uh, in Exodus, uh, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, and Leviticus, right? Not, all, not only that, they had their own law. They were like, you know it would be better than obeying all those laws? If we wrote a bunch of our own to obey, too. This is how much they loved obeying rules, right? It's not that they loved obeying them, it's that look, they loved how obeying them make them look to other people. So, they had, they had these thousands of laws that they had written down. Uh, that, that, they dictated like how far you could walk on a Sabbath day before it was considered to be doing work. They had laws about like how much thread you could carry in your pocket attached to a needle or not attached to a needle so that you wouldn't be, you know, like, like if you were, if you were go, like they want you to go and, and do some work accidentally carrying a needle somewhere. They, like how much, how much weight can you carry on a Sabbath day? What kind of knots can you tie to get water out of a well with a bucket? These, this, if, you, if you were laughing, that's okay. This is real though. I'm not making this up. This is really what they did. It's ridiculous. They were obsessed with the law of Moses, right? Moses, Abraham and Moses, they were like the dudes, okay? They wanted to know who could keep Moses' law better. They wanted to know who could teach Moses' law better. They wanted to know who could uh, summarize the law better. Remember, remember when the teacher comes up to Jesus and says, what's the most important commandment? He's testing Jesus. He wants to see how, how pithy of a response can Jesus give here. Jesus gives a good one, right? The thing is, is that all this led to hypocrisy and, and judgment and, and this kind of bureaucratic society that was based on uh, false precepts, false piety, of just keeping made-up rules. And it, these, these leaders, they use this to keep other people down and elevate themselves. And so what Matthew is doing here is he's, he's going he's gonna to use his whole gospel, but specifically the Sermon on the Mount, to address this, this very real problem. And he's proposing that Jesus has the antidote to this problem of being obsessed with law-keeping. Now, here's the thing, is that Jesus is the Messiah, right? He's the king, and he's the one who's going to overshadow Moses, okay? He's, gonna, he's the one that's going to lead people back to the truth, and Matthew wants to highlight that. The thing about Moses is that he's, he's the all-important lawgiver, right? If we look back and we see everything that, that Moses does and, and all the laws that came through him and, and all the things that Moses is, is crucial to in the Old Testament... Moses is a really important guy, and he delivers to Israel their most important asset, which is the law of God, right? It's, it's not just, not just the, the Ten Commandments, but it's how, it's the ceremonial law, the Levitical law, it's how Israel is going to relate to the people. I mean, it's how Israel is going to relate to God and how God's going to relate to his people, right? It's the most important thing that Israel received. It was, it was a grace and a mercy from God. What God had ever done that had given them specific, real instructions for how to worship and obey. But... The problem is, is that it only led to death, right? The law only led to condemnation. It only led to exactly what we were talking about here, this obsession with law-keeping and having a one-up on your neighbor. And so Matthew is presenting Jesus as the new and better Moses. Matthew is presenting Jesus as the one who can perfectly mediate God's covenant with the people. And he's going to do that throughout his whole book, but specifically he's going to set Jesus up as this greater Moses, and a greater king over a greater kingdom. So Jesus is the new Moses who mediates a perfect covenant which he himself fulfills, right? That's the one thing Moses fell short in. He couldn't fulfill the, the covenant that he delivered to the people, right? Because he's sinful just like they are. Jesus is not like that. So in the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus is doing something very much like what Moses did in Exodus 20 when he goes up on the mountain and he receives the law and then gives it to the people. Jesus is going to, to re-deliver that same law, but he's going to interpret it correctly. And not only that, but he's going to, to show that he's going to be the one who's going to complete it, understanding that we can't, right? Born in sin, full of iniquity, till the day that we die. We must depend on a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior, and that's what Matthew is setting us up for. And he does that really in a really cool way. Is he, he sets up these parallels between Jesus and Moses, things that actually happen, but he highlights them in a way that we can access them as readers of both the Old Testament and Matthew's gospel. The, the first one I want, want to point out, <clears throat> this parallel between, um, between Jesus and Moses, is think, think about Moses' story, right? Moses has to flee murder by Pharaoh, right? Because he's a little Jewish boy, and Pharaoh wants to kill off a significant portion of young Jewish children so that the, 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 the Israelites don't get too numerous and, and overtake the kingdom. So Moses' mom puts him in a basket, and he ends up going into the palace where he's saved, right? The same thing happened to Jesus, right? He's born. What does Herod do? He wants to kill all the babies under two years because he hears there's a king coming that might overthrow him. And so Jesus has to flee where? To Egypt. Matthew's highlighting this for us. He wants you to see the parallels between Matthew and Jesus. Not only that, but think about Moses and Israel where they're tested. Moses is tested in in the desert twice when when he flees after killing the man. He has to wander through the desert on his way to Midian. Also, as he's leading Israel through the desert, he's being tested in the wilderness. What does Jesus do right after being baptized? He goes into the wilderness to be tested. How long was Israel in the wilderness? Forty years. How long was Jesus in the wilderness? Forty days. Look at the analogies that Matthew's setting up for us. Moses goes up on a mountain to receive the law. Jesus goes up on a mountain to teach and complete the law. This ultimately looks forward to the day where Jesus will walk up that final hill on that final day, and he will conquer sin finally. That's what this all looks forward to. Matt wants us to... Matt, Matt, <laughs> Matthew. We might just refer to Matthew as Matt from now on. Matt, this is my shorthand in my notes. <laughs> Matthew wants us to see that Jesus isn't just like Moses, but he surpasses Moses. Jesus is the pinnacle of revelation. There's nothing to come after that's greater. Jesus is it. So Matthew wants us to, to set, set us up in a way so that we can see the Sermon on the Mount is in turn Jesus giving his own law, even though it's the same as the old law, but he's, he's clarifying it, right? So just like Moses on Sinai, Jesus goes up on the hill to release this fury of revelation for the church to chew on for the next generations. And we're meant to see these very clear parallels between him and Moses, and Matthew does a great job of that. And we see this from the very beginning, so we'll dive into the text here. So if you have your Bibles open to Matthew, uh, you can start with me in chapter, in chapter 4, verse 28. Jesus has these crowds following him, right? All these people that he's collected, uh, it says, it says uh, from Syria, and uh, he, he was traveling around. Um, and then in verse 20 it says, And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan this is Matthew setting us up to see Jesus as, in this moment, surpassing Moses. Not just surpassing Moses as a person, but surpassing the law that Moses delivered. Jesus is, is the ultimate and final next best thing, right? Jesus is the final revelation. So I want us to look at a few things this morning as we study this overview of Matthew 5 through 7. I, I, want, us, I want us to see 
really two main things. The number one, the number one thing, I can tell that Steve's having a hard time keeping up with me because my outline is like a, a little bit, at like, I, this is more stream of consciousness than it really is an outline. So if you're having a hard time tracking my what's up there, I'm with you, okay? Uh, what we're going to look at is two things. We're going to look at Jesus' authority in the Sermon on the Mount, right? So Jesus' authority being greater than Moses, and then we're going to look at Jesus' kingdom being greater than Israel, all right? So, so I want to look at this first thing first is Jesus' authority. This is the main theme in the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus and his authority. Who is he? How, do, how does he come by this authority? First thing that we see is in the notes here that Jesus supersedes Moses. Uh, Steve, you can, you can go back a few slides. We're going to go to the Jesus supersedes Moses part. So we've already talked about some of the ways that Jesus is like Moses, um, but here, here's a few more. So like if we, if we look in verse 24, 25 that we just read, Jesus is leading captives, right? He's leading people that are captive to a religious system that has kept them down and, and, and on the fringes of society because they, they don't have the money or the resources or the ability to keep the law as well as other people. And so they're, they're, they're uh, ostracized. Jesus is leading those people, just like Israel is leading, leading the, the, the people out of Egypt, right? So he, he leads captives in verse 425. And then in 5.1, we see Jesus ascend the mountain. It says in 5.1, he says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is a very similar parallel to what Moses did when he received and then gave the law. He went up onto the mountain. This is something cool that I want, want to point out that I think is foundational for us understanding what Jesus is doing here. Is, is, is the order in which Jesus is doing this, because we're about to hear some things as we study Matthew 5 through 7 that will be condemning to us if we don't have the right understanding of what's going on. Because we're going to hear Jesus lay out a very clear standard, the same way Moses did from the mountain. This is God's standard. But think about, think about the way that God did this with Israel, right? What does he do? He goes into Israel. He sends Moses to Israel inside of Egypt, right? He saves Israel from Egypt, walks them out of Egypt. They plunder the Egyptians, walks them out, sends them across the Red Sea, and then gives them a law to obey. God saves and then gives the commands to obey, right? God does the work, and then he gives you work to do, right? It's not God didn't say, here, Israel, get it fixed, and then I'll save you. God saves them and then gives them the law. Now, Matthew is, is, is doing this in kind of a reverse way here with Jesus. What Jesus is going to do in Matthew 5 through 7 is lay out a very clear, irrevocable standard for what it means to be in his kingdom. But Jesus isn't like Moses, right? Like, think of it this way, like a resume. If you've ever, you ever been to an interview, you take a resume with you. What is on that resume? Things that you have done. Because those are the things you're like, hey, look, I did these things. You should hire me because I did these good things. Jesus doesn't have to do that. Because he can make anything happen he wants to. So he can tell you what he's going to do and how it's going to happen and who you're going to be and what he's going to do before he does it. Because he can absolutely 100% make it happen. So Jesus is giving us a law here and he's going to move us in a direction as we, as we react to what he's saying in these passages. He's, 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 he's changing our hearts, right? He's not, he's not trying to, to soften the law for us, but he's trying to, to make it heavy so that he can, he can accomplish his goal of showing us who is really responsible for the law? What, who's going to take care of this? Is it going to be you or is it going to be me? Jesus is setting this up. So, so this is kind of like Jesus' reverse resume. If you look at the things that are in Matthew 5 through 7, these are all things that describe who Jesus is, what he's going to do, and who his people will be. And they all come true. Jesus' reverse resume. I don't know if a reverse resume is a thing. It's kind of like a list of goals, I guess. But for us, 
We just don't have any way to bring it about, just like Moses. He couldn't guarantee these things, but Jesus can. So not only is Jesus like Moses, but he's, he's better than Moses. Okay, so, so let's, let's look at another aspect of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus delivers his, uh, his, his Sermon on the Mount here, it, it's like his Mount Sinai, right? When Moses goes up the mountain and, and he receives the law and he comes and gives it to the people, right? This is like Jesus' similar event. It, it's basically like Jesus' inauguration speech, okay? If Jesus is a king, then he's coming heralding his own kingdom. And this is Jesus kicking things off. And, and that's why Matthew puts it where he puts it at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Because Jesus is saying up front, look, the law is difficult. And I'm not making it any less difficult. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to fulfill this stuff. Look at me. Look at what I'm going to do. Not what you have done, but what I'm going to do. So Jesus does a few things here. As, as we study the scriptures, we'll see, like in, uh, in, 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 verses, in chapter 5, all of chapter 5, Jesus isn't going to complicate the Old Testament law, right? He's not going to come in and, and add more things to it like the Pharisees have been doing, right? In, in an effort to be more obedient, they kind of had to like clarify, like, again, how much string can you carry in your pocket? Jesus isn't interested in that. Jesus is not going to complicate the law. He's going to clarify it. He's going to distill it down to the one thing, the one, the one crucial nugget, the heart issue, right? So he doesn't complicate the law. He clarifies. second thing he does is he doesn't soften the law. He solidifies it, right? Jesus doesn't do what we might expect here, right? We, we might expect, like, if a Messiah came, that he would be like, he would be like, whew, guys, I'm here now. And I just want to tell you that Old Testament law, it was a doozy. I know it was difficult. So we got to do something different because that was just really hard. Jesus doesn't do that. He says, listen, the law is good. There's not a problem with the law. There's not a problem with God's commands. The problem is with you not being able to obey it. He makes the law, in fact, more burdensome than it was. Not by adding complicated things to understand, but by making it an issue not of the body not of, not of how I treat other people, but what goes on in my heart. Oh, who can control that? Jesus makes it more burdensome. He says in, in verse 45, 48, he says, You must therefore be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What's more difficult than that? The final thing Jesus does with the law is he doesn't cast the law away. He completes it. right? So, so rather than doing like we said, rather than Jesus coming in and saying, All right, well, that was fun. We're going to do something different. Jesus says, no, that's good. And that's going to stand till the end of time. Like what I read to you this morning in verse 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it has all been accomplished. Jesus doesn't throw the law out. He says, I'm going to obey every ounce of it. Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't cast it away. He completes it. So Jesus' law-giving is, is not like Moses in a lot of ways, right? We've, we've seen the ways that he is and, and then the ways that he's, he's better. Because Jesus' law, what he's, what he's refreshing for us here is not, it's not a burden that we can bear. That's the point he wants to show us. It's not a burden that we can bear. It's one that he's going to bear for us. His law is not a list of qualifications, but rather it's, it's a list of accomplishments that he himself will complete. It's not like a, I think of like, like an entrance exam, which I've never taken, right? I've been in, I was in school for so many years, I never took an entrance exam to anything, right? But it's not like an entrance exam to his followers. It's not like you have to meet all these criteria and then you can be in my kingdom. He says, these, these kingdom truths are true of you when you are in me. These are his campaign promises as the newly inaugurated king. So we talked about how Jesus 
Jesus supersedes Moses, so he doesn't just come and, 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 and cover up what Moses did, but he goes beyond, right? So Jesus surpasses Moses. And this is because Jesus' authority, remember we're talking about Jesus' authority here. Jesus' authority is absolute. I want us to look at some verses, if you can flip to chapter 7. Verse 22, Jesus says, a few, I'm just going to read some scriptures and then we'll talk about them. In verse, chapter 7, verse uh, 22, he says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Jesus is talking about when, when he returns. And cast out demons in your name and, and do many mighty works in your name. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Verse 24, he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. And then 28 and 29, the crowd recognizes Jesus' authority. They say, it says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Jesus' authority is absolute. We see it here in our text. The first thing is that Jesus has the power to say who's in and who's out of the kingdom. Nobody else has that power but God himself, not even Moses who these, who these Pharisees of the day lauded, right? The people that were following him were, were under this assumption that, you know, Moses is probably the most power, powerful prophet that, ever, prophet that ever lived. Jesus says, I'm more powerful. Moses didn't say who got into the kingdom. He just gave you the law. I say who's in and who's out by my standard. And then Jesus has the perception to rightly interpret the law, right? If we go back into, into chapter 5, we see Jesus begins every new section with, uh, with, you have heard it said, you have heard it said, you have also heard it said. Jesus is going over all of these bad teachings that the Pharisees and different scribes and teachers have taught over the years. And he's saying, toss that out. That's not what the word says. Jesus is, is usurping other people's with perceived authority. He's usurping their authority. Only he has the ability to rightly interpret the law. And then finally, Jesus alone can properly mediate God's covenant. And we've been talking about this, that because Jesus is God and he completes the righteous requirements of the law, he alone is our hope. He's the only one, not Moses, not the law, not any other prophet can properly mediate the covenant because Jesus is the only one that's sinless. Jesus is the only one that can intensify the law because he's the only one that can obey it. Because Jesus is God and he completes this righteous requirement, we see that the kingdom has very little to do with my good behavior or what, what, what pastor or leader or teacher I follow or what, what my positive thinking can accomplish for me in the world. That doesn't mean anything. Jesus alone holds the keys. His authority is clear and he's making it clear in Matthew 5-7 through as he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount. I want us to look at our, this is our, our last big section. There's, there's three things I want to look at and we're going to wrap up uh, in, just, in just a few minutes. But when we talk about Jesus' authority and how he, he uh, surpasses Moses, uh, how he supersedes Moses, how he surpasses Moses. Now I want to talk about Jesus' kingdom. This is the other theme in Matthew 5 through 7 that we're going to see over the next few weeks. Jesus' kingdom. We're, and the best way I can think to, to study, like to, to phrase this for us was to ask some questions. Like, where is the kingdom? Uh, what is the kingdom? And, and who is in the kingdom? Right? What, what's Jesus' kingdom all about? Well, the first one is that Jesus' kingdom, it's greater than Israel. So, so where is it? Well, it's not geography, right? How many times in Scripture do we read Jesus, he, when he's before Pilate, he says, my, my kingdom's not of this world, right? As we study Matthew 5 through 7, we're going to see Jesus referring to the kingdom of heaven. And he's going he's, he's to refer to storing up treasures where? 
with your heavenly Father in heaven, right? That's not like, not, like, not like in heaven is some bank over the mountains, right? It's like it's not here, right? His kingdom is not here. So it's not geography, okay? We're going to lay up treasures somewhere else in some other realm. It's not on this earth. Now, that's the question. If it's not here, then where is it? Well, the kingdom is where God is, right? The kingdom is where the king resides, where the king's authority is. So it's not as much of a where as it is a what. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about the specifics. because I say that phrase, the kingdom is where the king reigns. Well, where does God not reign? Well, everywhere. All of creation is his kingdom. But Jesus is giving us something specific here, that there is a kingdom within the kingdom, right? There's a realm within all of God's authority where there, where there is a special few privileged that God has chosen to bring into, into the fold. We're going to talk about that next week. So, so, but broadly speaking, the, the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is where God is. It's not just where he is, but it's where his people submit to his rule. So, so we have to ask the question, if it's not as much a where as it is a what, well, what is the kingdom? The first thing that we, can, that we need to note from 5 through 7 is that it's spiritual. Well, how do we deduce this from just a passing glance at 5 through 7? Look at the way Jesus intensifies the law in chapter 5, right? He says, you've heard it said, I'll just, I'll just read you a few. Okay, let's do this. This is easy. Here's the word right here. He says, you've heard it said to, the, that, uh, said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable for judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Okay, so if you've ever been angry, you're now a murderer. Not just if you've murdered, if you've ever been angry, you're a murderer. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. It's not the act of adultery, it's the heart of an adulterer. Someone will just press number one on that keypad back there. That's our alarm system going off, I guess. Everything's fine. We're good. Verse 33 and 5, he says, Again, you've heard it said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Let your yes be yes and no be no. Like, th- this is Jesus intensifying the law. It's not about just what people see, right? It's about what goes on in the heart. How does that relate to the kingdom being spiritual? Well, as Jesus gives the law, it all begins in the heart and not in the body, right? It, it eventually makes it, sin makes its way out into the physicality, but it starts in the heart, in the spiritual, right? To transgress God's law doesn't only happen in action, but it's what happens inside. And that's intense, right? That's, that's, that's a crazy thing to think about, that i got to be not just in control of like, like oh, how I lash out, but what's going on internally. That's a, that's a new level of obedience for these people. So it, the kingdom is, is more, I, I, say this, I say this to myself a lot, the kingdom is more than molecules, right? It's not just what I can see and taste and touch. God judges, Jesus judges more astutely and more deeply than we ourselves can. So that is why God value, his values are different from our sinful humans. And we are upset because we're obsessed with this visual, right? With the tactile, with the verifiable, with the scientific method. We like that because it's like, I got that, I understand it. But, but God's wisdom and, 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 his, and his judgment goes beyond that. And so his kingdom is like that. As, as much as it is what goes on in the heart that condemns us, right? So if, it's, if what happens in my heart can condemn us, the same thing is true of what can save me. God's kingdom is spiritual because it's not just what I do. It's not what I do that gets me into the kingdom, but it's what I believe. It's where my heart is. It's what God has been after since the dawn of creation, the heart of man. And so his kingdom, likewise, is spiritual. God's kingdom is not, is not so much for those who have obeyed perfectly, but it's those who have trusted fully in Jesus' power to save them. 
God's kingdom is spiritual. Not only, not only is it spiritual, but it's soon coming, right? So there's an aspect that this is Jesus' inauguration speech, but I don't know if y'all remember the end of the story. Jesus left, right? He was just like, good luck. I'll be back. Okay, what do we do now? Luckily, we have the scriptures, right? But the, the kingdom isn't complete, right? Jesus doesn't rule over everything. His, his enemies aren't his, aren't his footstool yet. So there's an aspect of the kingdom that's here because Jesus has kicked it off, right? He's like, all right, new kingdom, it's happening now, this is what we're doing. But then he's going to come back and finish that work. So it's, it's what we call the already, right? The things that are already true, the things that Jesus has promised, and also the not yet. But this begs the big question. This is where we're going to wrap up today. I know I've been going for a while, but we had a lot to cover. Who's in the kingdom, okay? Who's in the kingdom, we talk about where is the kingdom, what is the kingdom. This is the question of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the thing that Jesus is driving towards, is who's in the kingdom. And that's the question that the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount poses and that Jesus answers for us. So what we're going to wrap up today, what's, what's into the, what is in the kingdom of heaven? Who's in there? Because here's the thing. In Matthew 5.48, Jesus says something terrifying. If you're honest with yourself, he says something terrifying. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, right? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, it says in verse 520. That's the standard. The standard is perfection, and that should terrify you, should terrify you, because you are born in sin. I am born in sin. I was born this way, right? I was born into a sinful world with a sinful heart, and not only was I born in sin, but I've continued in sin, even knowing what sin is, even knowing the, the right and wrong thing to do. What do I do but the wrong thing continually? So this standard should, should scare us. It should condemn us. So when we read the Sermon on the Mount, there's this temptation, right? Because we get scared by this standard. This is what we do. We say, let me find the ways that I measure up, right? We go through and we read these things, and we read these things about divorce and oaths and giving to the needy and loving your enemies and fasting and laying up treasures in heaven. And we think, I'm gentle. I'm not angry. I'm not an adulterer. I love my enemies. Even if that were true, because you do the same thing I do, even if that were true of you, what about all the times you're not? Because you're just thinking about that one time you obeyed that command, right? I was That one time that lady at the grocery store was mean to me, I didn't say anything. How about all the times you yelled at your neighbor about something, right? Like, like even if you did obey it, you only did it once, and that's what you remember. You don't remember all the times that you, that you didn't obey it. And there's two, there's two primarily wrong ways, and this is, if you didn't listen to anything else I've said, listen to this, all right? So I know we're getting a little stir-crazy. Here we go. There's two wrong ways to read the Sermon on the Mount. Number one is going to be more obvious than number two, but I'm going to explain number two and not really number one. Number one is that this is God's standard for me to gain salvation through work. Hear me say unequivocally that that is not what this is. You cannot gain salvation through work. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You were born in sin. You've continued in sin. And all you've done your whole life, all we have done our whole lives, is just make a mountain of sin that we have no ability or no intention of doing anything about. And that's why Christ came to die for sinners. Before you even acknowledged him, before you even knew who he was, he had died for your sin that you could repent and trust in him and his work on the cross and his resurrection as your one and only hope to be saved from that sin. You cannot work your way into heaven. And that is the wrong way to read what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. The second wrong way to read this, though, and this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time the next three weeks, is that this is God's ploy to get me to look to Jesus 
and forget about the commands. Because that's a wrong way this has been interpreted in history. Martin Luther did it, right? Martin Luther got off base there, right? The reformer. He was like, oh, it's just meant to make you look at Jesus. Like, that's kind of true, Martin. But, like, here's the thing. Like, this also holds weight for us. Both of these ways of reading it are wrong. But remember, because remember, Jesus, he didn't come to abolish the law, right? Jesus didn't say the law was bad. The reason you couldn't obey is because the law didn't work. The law did its job, right? It condemned you. If you'd obeyed it, you would, have, you would have been given salvation. But you didn't. It did its job perfectly. But Jesus comes not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? To make it a complete thing. To close the books on it, put it on its shelf, and open this new chapter where the way to be saved is through faith in Christ. I want to think of it this way. It's like, it's like you, you go into a classroom. It's like the first day of class. And maybe you've, maybe you've got your syllabus in some books or whatever. Maybe you're a little bit nervous about it's your first day of class. It's like a, a tough math class or like, I don't know, maybe you like math. Maybe it's a, a tough like writing course or something. Whatever, whatever you don't like. And you're a little bit worried, right? You go into the classroom and you sit down and you're kind of like, like ready, you know. Or maybe you're like trying to work off the nervous tension by like trying to be funny, but like no one's laughing because everyone's nervous too. I'm describing myself. I hope you know that, right? <laughs> That's what I do. Uh, and you sit down, and, and you're like, okay, man, I, this is an honors course. This is a bad idea. I shouldn't have done this. I should have just, I should have just taken a PE, right? And, you, and the teacher comes up front. He says, I know some of you are nervous because it's a difficult class, but I want to let you know I worked it out. I talked with the administration, talked with the school board. I've given you all A's. And you're like, what, what was that? Say that again. I gave you all A's. What? He's like, I just want you to come in here and just enjoy the material. I, g- I gave you all A's. You have an A. It's guaranteed. You could not show up at all, you get an A. Or you can do all the work, still get an A. I just want you to be here and just enjoy the material. This is how Jesus is presenting the law to us. He's, he's saying the imperatives here, like the commands, they won't save you, right? Because the saving has been done. I have done it. If you want to be saved, put your faith in me. But here's the thing. The law is still good. Romans 8.34 says this. You can flip there. You don't have to. Just listen to me. It says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. It says, By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And this is the hope. That is our hope. So the imperatives won't save you. The commands won't save you. Only Jesus will, right? But the imperatives are also not scraps, okay? It won't save you, but they're not scraps. Notice the two S's. I'm trying to get you to remember this, all right? The imperatives are important. We look at the imperatives and the commands of these scriptures of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as an already accomplished work of Christ attributed to us who are in Christ through salvation, through faith. We look at... at it's already accomplished work of Christ attributed to, to us by God through our faith in Jesus. And then we put our noses in the book and apply these truths knowing that the results are guaranteed through the cross and the resurrection. This is the path to joy and life and righteousness. This was God's intent from creation. Why would we not willingly participate in this? If we say we love Christ, then we love this because this is Christ. This is what he devoted himself to, what he became. This is what he became incarnate to do, was to prove that this is the way. He's just guaranteed the results for us. So we look at the Sermon on the Mount from the other side of the cross, right? 
It's not the bridge to bridge the gap, right? It's what we look back on through. We can look back on what Christ has done and walk according to this, but only if our faith is first in Christ. Only Christ saves, not the law. So guys, just just to sum up, the Savior is perfect. Jesus is perfect. He gives us a standard, and he intensifies that standard, and, and and he says it very clearly in verse 548. He says, you therefore must be perfect. Jesus is not describing us so much as he is describing himself. Jesus is perfect, and his perfect obedience is our benefit if our faith is in him. Jesus is perfect. He gives a perfect standard, and then he fulfills that perfect standard in his life, ministry, and crucifixion. So the real question that I pose is, who is the kingdom? Is, it, is, is what I said in the beginning. It's the, the solution to that question, the answer to that question, is submission. Jesus says it in 7, 13. He says, enter by the narrow gate, the kingdom of heaven that is. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it, enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. The reason that gate is hard to find, the gate into the kingdom is hard to find, is because it's only as wide as Jesus. Jesus is the gate to the kingdom of heaven. You must, you must, you must place your faith fully in him. Not add anything and not take anything away. And the world will tell you that too. You've got to do Jesus plus this, right? You've got to be Jesus plus you've got to be for this or against this. You don't. You don't. Jesus is the standard. Jesus is the way. Those who enter the kingdom of heaven, they enter through Christ and Christ alone. And submission to him alone, submission to him as the king of the kingdom is the only hope that humanity has. And that is what Jesus is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount. Faith in his work alone, not your work, as the means of atonement. This is the foundation for the Sermon on the Mount. This is, these are the truths. That I, if I said something that piqued your interest, I hope to be able to answer it over the next three weeks. Because we have a lot more study to do. This was just an overview. You notice we we pulled from each section here. We're going to dive into this book because, well, because it's God's word, first of all. But secondly, because these are the words of Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is is a very particular teaching that Jesus gave to us. Just like Matt just did his high priestly prayer in John 17. This is is that same kind of material. It's rich. It's Christ at his, at his most truthful and vulnerable, and, and it's his, his long-form Jesus, right? He said, like, he's really laying it out for us. We're going to dive in. We're going to study God's word, and we're going to be changed and molded by it. We're going to look at it not just as scraps, but as the path to righteousness and joy, right? That he's freed us. He's freed us from the burden of the law so that we can come back to the law and be like, man, I enjoy this now. It's good. It's good news. It's good news. Let me pray for us, uh, and then I have... Maybe a cup, one announcement, and then, then we'll be free to go. Let's pray together. God, you're good. You are, you are so good, and you've given us your word. You've given us these rich truths, Lord, and, and, and you've ordained it that, that through men you, and the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would write them down and you would give them to us thousands of years later, God. We thank you that we can study your words, that we can hear the words of Jesus on these pages. God, that's, that's a miracle, and I, and I don't want to overlook that, and I don't want to minimize it, God, and I, and I don't want to say anything about your word, God, that, that you have not said is true, that this, these are the words of life. God, we pray that as we study, the, study this book together on Sundays and as we study other parts of this book 
together in other parts of the week, in our D groups and in our growth groups, God, that your word is the foundation on which we operate, God. And we dispel the untruths that the world would have us believe about what this book is and who Jesus is and who we are and what the path to salvation is, that we would reject anything that is not found in your word, that we would reject anything that is Christ alone saves. And God, that that would give us a focus on the gospel above all things, no matter what the world tells us we need to be about, that we would be about exalting Christ in one another and in the lost and in the broken in the homeless, and the hungry, and the hurting, God, that we would offer them with a cold cup of water the true hope of life, Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected for you, a sinner. God, that is the hope. That is the way to the, to the, the heavenly kingdom, God, that we're all looking forward to. Lord, we, we pray that you come back soon. We pray that you, that you make good on this inauguration speech promise, God, to, to, that you would come back. You would make all things new. But Lord, in your time, And while we wait, we will do your work. We will obey these words because it is our joy to do so. Because you freed us to do that. God, we we exalt you and proclaim your goodness for that. We love you and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.